for better or for worse, there's so much noise in the service mesh space, and there's so much buzz about the service mesh, but often it's hard to pick apart what it actually does. You know, we want to really understand what the problems are that the service mesh solves. And rather than building like some giant platform that can do anything for all people, we want to give you the smallest, lightest possible solution to those problems. You are listening to the Kubeless Podcast, a show interviewing project maintainers for CNCF Sandbox, incubating and graduated projects. We'll discuss each project to understand where it came from and discuss the roadmap and plans to continue the project. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. I publish the Kubelist weekly newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like Puppet, Harness, HashiCorp, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at replicated.com. The Kubelist podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Finally, sign up for the Kubelist weekly newsletter and read previous issues at kubelist.com. Today, William Morgan from Buoyant joined me to discuss Linkerd and service meshes. William is the CEO and co-founder of Buoyant and has been deep in the microservices world since before Kubernetes was even out. Whether or not you're running Linkerd or any service mesh, I hope this episode is interesting. William starts out by explaining what a service mesh is and the origin story of Linkerd. He explains the motivation for the evolution from Linkerd v1 to v2, where we are today. William then explains the complex service mesh ecosystem and provides recommendations for how to get started with Linkerd. The conversation goes on to all sorts of topics, from his philosophical views of what a service mesh is to what it's like to run an open source business. William explains the new commercial offering, Dive, that the team has been working on and what it is. This is a fun conversation and I'm excited to share it. I hope you'll learn something new about Linkerd, service meshes, or Kubernetes today. Hi, I'm here today with William Morgan, the founder and CEO of Buoyant, the company behind Linkerd. Welcome, William. Thanks, Mark. Really nice to be here. So let's just dive right in. So Linkerd is a service mesh. I think a good place to start out is just, can you explain what the functionality of a service mesh is? What is a service mesh supposed to do for us? Yeah, that's a good question because there's so much buzz about the service mesh, but often it's hard to pick apart what it actually does. In part, that's because it doesn't actually do anything new. So the way I like to think about it is the the service mesh has these kind of three buckets of features that it gives you. It gives you a set of features around reliability, it gives you a set of features around observability, and it gives you a set of features around security. Right? And it's designed to give you those you know, in a world primarily where you're, you're running on something like Kubernetes and you're building microservices. Right? And the thing that the service mesh does, like we've had those features forever, you know, retries and timeouts and like TLS and, and whatever. We've always had those features. What the service mesh does, kind of the, the magic is that it gives you those features at the platform level. So rather than having the application have to implement them, you shift them down to kind of like the underlying platform. So Kubernetes, you know, your Kubernetes platform is doing a bunch of these features for you. Yeah, that's great. I think that's one of like the main draws of Kubernetes in general. You know, we've had like all of that functionality. So I'd like to hear a little bit about like the background, the origin story of Linkerd. Um, you were at Twitter in the early days before starting Buoyant. Like, can you kind of walk us through the origin of where Linkerd came from? Yeah. So both my co-founder Oliver Gold and I were engineers at Twitter, and Twitter at that time was going through this 
pretty massive transformation internally from this monolithic Ruby on Rails app into this big microservices, you know, kind of thing. And what's amazing is that that transformation actually worked, right? <laughs> Which often these these massive rewrites don't actually work in a, in a company, right? This is like an initiative. It's like this big initiative. But it worked, and it worked really, really well. And as part of that, we had to figure out a lot of a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't think we really knew what we were doing. In fact, we didn't really have the word microservices. We didn't even that wasn't like a thing. And this was you know 2010 to 2015 anyway. So it was like kind of pre Docker, uh, or maybe Docker was around, but we certainly weren't aware of it. But as part of that transformation. We had to kind of figure out this new thing that was happening in our application, which was the service to service communication. So in the monolithic world, you know, we just had this big old blob of code and, and you'd make function calls. And now suddenly we had replaced those function calls with network calls. So service A would call service B. And network call is very different from a, a function call, right? Like a function call basically always works and it's extremely fast. Whereas a network call often doesn't work and it's often very, very slow. So in order to handle that, Twitter had to invent a bunch of infrastructure, you know, basically to make that a manageable thing. One of those uh, layers was this project called Finagle. It was this open source project. And you as the application developer, you'd say, well, I'm service A, I want to talk to service B. You know, hey, Finagle, make that call and give me the result. And you get the result. But under the hood, Finagle was doing load balancing and it was instrumenting everything and exporting metrics and it was you know, uh, doing all this like fancy request multiplexing and, and all that stuff. So, the very first version of Linkerd, you know, which was the the first service mesh, was literally Finagle in uh, proxy form. Right? Finagle was this library. We were like, well, no one wants to use a library. Let's turn this into a proxy. So, Twitter originally wasn't on Kubernetes, right? They were on Mesos. So when Finagle was out originally, that was a was that a Mesos project, and then eventually. You you created Linkerd as the Kubernetes implementation of that. Uh, it wasn't really like that. Finagle wasn't really a Mesos project. I mean, certainly we were we were starting to deploy things heavily to Mesos at that time. Though we also had a you know a whole bunch of the infrastructure was uh, you know just running on regular old unorchestrated machines. And actually, the first version of Linkerd was pretty agnostic. So we would work with. Mesos, we'd work with Kubernetes, we'd work with console, we'd work with you know a bunch of these different kind of service discovery providers. A zookeeper, which is what uh, Twitter used heavily for for service discovery. Uh, and what's funny is over time, you know, and Linkerd has evolved quite a bit since since those days. Uh, we've actually focused a lot more on Kubernetes, and the modern version of Linkerd is extremely tied to Kubernetes. And you know, a lot of that kind of platform flexibility we've actually shed along the way. I'd like to talk about the differences there between Linkerd version one and version two, because what I've heard is, you know, my understanding is that Linkerd one was a Java application, and then Linkerd two, you you rewrote it into a different runtime. Can you talk a little bit about like what drove that and what those changes were? Yeah, that's right. Because that first version, you know, Finagle, that was a Scala library. All of this Twitter infrastructure was on the JVM, primarily in Scala. There's a little bit of Java here and there. You know, V1 of Linkerd was okay. We're taking Finagle, we're turning it into like a proxy. So that meant that Linkerd itself was on the JVM, and that was kind of okay. But you know, especially as the world kind of moved more into the Kubernetes ecosystem, it became harder and harder to really convince people to use the JVM. You know, especially 
by the time you added Scala and Netty and Finagle and like all these layers, you know, the JVM is very good at, at scaling up. You can get these single instances that can handle crazy amounts of throughput. It's not very good at scaling down. What we wanted to do was we wanted to give you a lot of these proxies, right? And so we'd end up in this world where, okay, the proxy, you know, after heroic engineering efforts, the proxy would take 130 megs of memory, right? Tiny by JVM standards. But people would be running that alongside their their little Go applications and containers on Kubernetes, and those applications were taking 50 megs. And you know, <laughs> it started to get a little silly for us to say, oh, don't worry, it's like here's this transparent layer of infrastructure. By the way, it's gonna like quadruple your memory usage or <laughs> whatever. So for a variety of reasons, in I think it was 2018, we released the 2.0 version of, of Linkerd, which was a complete rewrite from the ground up. You know, it shares a name, shares kind of the the feature set, but almost every other aspect was different. And you know, it has a control plane that's written in in Go and a data plane that's written in Rust. And you know, all of the JVM and kind of the the Twitter stack stuff has been left behind by us. And that was a um, a pretty momentous transformation uh, for the project. And that's kind of where all the modern you know Linkerd effort is in this new architecture of of Go and and Rust. So now I'm assuming I can run the sidecar Linkerd, and it's not going to use 130 megs per pod. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that side, that term sidecar is a good one uh, to to bring up as part of this discussion because the way that Linkerd works and, and that many, though not all, service meshes work is they add those proxies, they add them directly into the Kubernetes pod as like a sidecar container. So your application container is in the pod, the sidecar proxy container is in there, and we do a little fancy. Wiring so that all TCP requests to and from the pod go through that proxy. So I think you know talking about Linkerd and how it works compared to other ones. I'd like to like dive in a little bit and and understand like what are like some of the differences. So I think there's a lot of service meshes out there. Um, some big ones are Istio, Open Service Mesh, Linkerd, obviously. Can you help me understand like what's different between those three, or what's different between Linkerd and the other two? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more than another two. There's like another nine or something. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> really, in fact, there's even a there's a company that has two different service meshes. Wow. Which, <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's interesting to to think about kind of the reasons why there's been such an explosion there. But the short answer is that Linkerd is the best. You should just use that. <laughs> <laughs> For us, the way we think about it is a lot of the service meshes have that same goal. Right, which is we want to give you these features at the platform level, and the reason why that's so powerful, you know, you can move things around from here to there for any number of reasons. But the reason why having these features at the platform level is so powerful is because they are platform features. Right, these are things that it's actually kind of irritating for the developers to have to implement, and it's hard to get right. And they're often features that work best when every Component of the application is using them, so all these you know kind of factors combined mean that it's actually a lot better for everyone involved if those if those features live at the platform layer, and then the platform owners can can kind of own them and control their own destiny, rather than having to rely on the developers to implement TLS all in the same way and, and you know kind of fight with the product managers who don't care about TLS but they care about these features and, and so on. So, anyways, every service mesh kind of Gives you that same basic set of functionality, but there's a huge difference in kind of the shape of the project. And for us, for for Linkerd, our focus has really been on 
we want to give you like the minimalist approach. And especially we want to, you know, we want to really understand what the problems are that the service mesh solves. And rather than building like some giant platform that can do anything for all people, we want to give you the smallest, lightest possible solution to those problems specifically. And that has resulted in Linkerty actually looking very different from many other service mesh projects. We have a, you know, we have a, a dedicated proxy for one that is really specific to the service mesh use case. A lot of other service meshes are built on Envoy, which is a, a good project, but it's a generic proxy that has a lot of complexity and, and takes a lot of memory because it has to do a lot of different things. And you know, the kind of bias in Linkerd towards relying on Kubernetes so heavily means that the configuration surface area is really, really minimal. And a lot of stuff we do, you know, like mutual TLS or whatever, we 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 just turn that on by default. We don't need you to configure anything. The moment you add Linkerd, you know, oh my gosh, you've got MTLS working between pods without you having to do any configuration whatsoever. That kind of stuff is just a that's like a you know kind of the, the shape of the project as determined by kind of the goals that we that we put in front of us. Okay. And Linkerd it implements the SMI, right? The service mesh interface. And that was announced, I think, back in Barcelona, KubeCon, like a year ago. Can you kind of talk a little bit and help me understand what SMI is and what that means for, to, for a service mesh to in, implement that? Yeah. So, you know, we've been heavily involved with SMI since the very early days. And in fact, if you look at, <laughs> everyone likes to say they've been heavily involved, but if you look at the, you know, on GitHub at the list of contributors, it's Thomas Rampelberg, who's <laughs> the, you know one of our uh, Linkerd maintainers, who actually has the the number one commit or the number one set of commits by count to SMI, which is pretty funny. Um, but so the goal with SMI Service Mesh Interface is to provide an interface that is Service Mesh agnostic that you can build into. So it doesn't matter if the underlying implementation is Linkerd or Istio or something else, you can use this interface in order to accomplish. Certain things. So, like the example that I always like to use is there's a tool called Flagger, which does progressive delivery. Basically, you know, canary rollouts where you look at the metrics. So, you look at success rate, you know, you've got your existing version, you've got the new version, you slowly start shifting traffic onto the new version, you're looking at the success rate. And if success rate starts dropping relative to the old version, then like you undo that, that traffic split. That's a really cool example of something. Of the kind of tool that can sit on top of SMI because SMI has an, a metrics API and SMI has a, a traffic shifting API. And by combining those two with this tool, well, now Flagger has you know, the ability to basically do the same kind of behavior across any service mesh that supports those interfaces. So that's what SMI is. Linkerd implements parts of SMI, there's still parts of, that we're working on. And, and the spec itself, of course, is, is, a, is a changing and evolving thing. But that's the basic idea. And, and to me, the goal, like kind of the, the point of this, is for tools like Flagger. It's less of a user-facing thing. Right? If you use a service mesh, what do you care whether it's this one or that one? You know, or whether it implements some API that someone else has decided, right? But if you're building a tool, well, then it's really useful to have this tool work across all service meshes. And that actually brings up another question. So at the beginning, you mentioned a service mesh provides reliability, observability, and security. And now, like the functionality of Flagger with progressive rollout, is that something that's also built right into Linkerd, or are you depending on the ecosystem to provide that level of functionality with Linkerd? Yeah, that's a great question. So Linkerd provides the building blocks. So there, what we provide is 
golden metrics, so things like success rates and uh, latency distributions and request volumes and, and things like that. We provide you know those uniformly across every application or every service running on your cluster. So that's super cool, right? Without you having to change the application, you get all these metrics. And we provide the ability to do traffic splitting, where you can say, okay, I want to send you know n percent of traffic that's destined for this service, I actually want to send to this other service. And those are the two building blocks, and Flagger composes them into this particular use case around progressive delivery. There's other things you could do, you know, there's other ways you could combine those building blocks. So, for example, with some of the multi-cluster stuff we do, we have these failover mechanisms where you can say, okay, I want to shift traffic away from this implementation of the service on this cluster, and I actually want to go and rely on the same implementation as other cluster because this cluster is like failing or whatever. So, you know, I think this is a really nice way of doing things. We'll provide those basic building blocks, and then you can build application-specific logic on top of that. If I install Linkerd, is it completely contained inside one Kubernetes cluster? Um, you were just hinting at the ability to have it across multiple clusters. Like, where would be the use case that that's useful, or, or how are most people running it today? Yeah, so for a variety of reasons, Linkerd is the kind of level of granularity is at the cluster level. So you install Linkerd on a cluster, and you get one Linkerd per cluster. We early on tried having multiple Linkerds like per namespace or whatever, but Kubernetes just makes it really hard to do that. There's a whole lot of Kubernetes primitives that are, you know, kind of cluster wide, you know, CRDs are cluster wide, and there's no hierarchical namespaces. So, anyways, yeah, Linkerd's kind of level of granularity is at the cluster. But one thing that we are noticing in the in the Kubernetes world, kind of for those same reasons, is that there's an increasing use of multi-cluster deployments, right? And by multi-cluster, I don't just mean like dev staging prod, which almost everyone has, but instead multiple prod clusters, which you do maybe because you know you want to have your clusters be really close to your users, and so you've got like geographic diversity, or maybe you do it for kind of fault tolerance or high availability reasons or disaster recovery or or whatever. And so in that world, being able to provide uh, communication between clusters actually fits really nicely into Linkerd's you know feature set, right? So Linkerd is mediating the communication that happens between two pods that are run on the same cluster. Well, we can actually extend those same guarantees around TLS and reliability and so on to cross cluster communication. Uh, that was a big feature for us in the 2.8 release earlier this year was uh, this kind of transparent. Multi-cluster communication, which is really to say cross-cluster communication. It's cool. I want to switch gears for just a minute and kind of come back to the the ecosystem and the various service meshes that are out there. Linkerd is a it's a CNCF incubating project right now. Open service mesh is new from Microsoft, and that's a CNCF sandbox project, I believe. A lot of similarities with Linkerd, um, but Istio is not in the CNCF. That's in the Open Usage Commons. And that's a little bit of a, a, a change for the, the Kubernetes ecosystem to not just have everything in the CNCF. Have you been happy with the decision to be a part of the CNCF? Or like, do you have any thoughts on that decision and that split that Istio has created? Yeah, I think we've been happy with the decision to be part of the CNCF. Like that, it seems very natural for us, right? That's where Kubernetes is. That's where Prometheus is. That's where like everything that's in our ecosystem is all hosted in the same organization and Linkerd just fits right in there. You know, for us, I think I, I take a very particular 
lens through these things, which is that what I care about is what makes sense to the user. And so to a certain extent, like uh, who cares whether it's in foundation A or foundation B, like it doesn't really matter, you know. But on the other hand, I don't need to add any more like weirdnesses, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, so uh, let's have it be part of the CNCF. Why not? It's like it, it fits right in there. For Istio to be in OUC, you know, and not just to like be there, but for Google to have created that thing, you know, just for Istio or Istio and, and you know, a handful of other projects. Again, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, well, who cares? You know, from the user perspective, if you can solve a problem with a piece of technology, then like, whatever. On the other hand, it does feel weird. I don't think it does Istio any favors. You know, whether it actively harms adoption, that's maybe up for discussion. I don't know. I tend to be a little pragmatic about these things. So mostly I'm concerned about like, can you solve a problem with this tool in as direct and concrete a way as possible? And if you can, then great. And if not, then than not. Cool. Linkerd is currently uh, an incubating project. Do you have a roadmap or a timeline or anything that you're thinking about to apply for graduation and make it a graduated project? Yeah, I mean, I think we've been ready for graduation for a long time. <laughs> it's just I haven't gone through the the hurdles to make that happen, but I suspect we'll we'll start moving in that direction pretty soon. I mean, you know, again, like on the one hand, who cares? You know, it's like it solves these problems. What does it matter whether it's at level two or level three of you know whatever this group of people over here have decided? On the other hand, like, hey, why not? If we're going to be in the CNCF line, then we might as well go the whole way. But certainly, there's more than enough adoption and more than enough contribution and kind of ecosystem activity to support graduation. So it's really just a question of yeah, going through the process. Yeah, when you put the time into it, there's not a certain feature or a certain metric that you're trying to try to hit still right now or anything like that. No, not really, not really. I mean, the graduation, as I understand it, is intended to be a measure of, you know, is this a mature project? Is this something that you can adopt and kind of rely on? Okay, it's going to be there. It's going to be around. There's like an ecosystem of of activity around it. It's not going to just die and you know wither on the vine. And Linkerd, you know, for years now has met all of those criteria. So a lot of different projects in the CNCF are projects inside larger organizations, but Linkerd is like, I mean, that's what Buoyant was created in, in order to make. And so it's all open source, though, and you're giving it away for free. You don't even have, you've given the project into the CNCF. How does Buoyant make money? Oh, gosh. You know, deep inside Linkerd, there's like a little section of the code where if the request that you are proxying contains like a dollar amount, or a monetary amount, we just subtract one, like 0.01 from that, and we send it to Buoyant's bank account. I've seen that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that is a good question, and obviously it's one that every of our many investors has wanted a really clear answer for because we're not just building an open source project, but we are building a, a business around that. So, you know, at Buoyant, we're taking a, a particular approach, which is I've never really liked the, the open core model, which is kind of like the traditional, I guess, way of making money from open source, which is that you have an open source thing, you know, and then you have like the enterprise version of that. And the enterprise version has like these certain features that you need. And like, you know, I think there's, there's ways you can do this that are really annoying to the users, and there's ways you can do this that are not quite as annoying. Uh, in terms of which features you place in the the commercial versions and which features you place in the in the open source versions, 
But I think it's really tricky to get that balance right. And every time you are investing energy in that project, you know, you're you're asking yourself, okay, is this the kind of thing that I should try and put behind a paywall, or is this something that should be in the open source? And I think it's it's very difficult to have that mental process and to to do that in a way that's honest with your users. You know, I think if you follow that model, you, it's very easy to set yourself up where you are kind of doing things that are not in the best interest of your users because you are trying to grow the company. Anyway, so what we're doing is is something quite different, which is I want to build tooling, you know, from Buoyant, so as opposed to Linkerd, which is all open source, the commercial stuff that I want to build around Buoyant, that we are building at Buoyant, is uh, tooling around, not the service mesh itself, but around the sorts of things that are enabled by the service mesh. So the most obvious incarnation of this is we have a SaaS product called Dive. Right now it's in private beta, but if you go to dive.co, you can sign up for the waitlist. And we're we're slowly letting people in, and it's super cool, and getting lots of uh, great feedback. And we've got you know a lot of customers using it and getting a lot of value out of it. But what Dive does is it's not a service mesh, but <laughs> it is instead a layer that sits on top of the service mesh, sits on top of Kubernetes, and it solves a bunch of kind of higher level problems for you. So what the service mesh solves, what Linkerd solves for you. Are these kind of computer problems, right? Like, I have a request, I need to send it, you know, it's over here, I need to send it over there, and I, you know, if it fails, I need it to retry and I need it to be secure so that, you know, if someone breaks in, they can't like sniff the communication. And then what Dive solves is really more of the, the people side of things, the process side, the business side of things. Okay, I've actually got like five different clusters and I've got my application and it's distributed across all of them. You know, and one of these clusters is like our prod EU cluster, and one is our prod NA cluster. And so, how do I make sense of this application? How do I make sense of the the metrics and, and things around it? How do I put those into things like SLOs or, or service level objectives? How do I tie those to business metrics? How do I, as an operator, actually really build this platform? Because that's ultimately what you're doing, right? I want to build a platform for the developers. How do I give them a UI? Where maybe they're not Kubernetes experts, but they should be able to understand when they deploy their code to this platform that I've built on top of Linkerd and Kubernetes and whatever, you know, they should understand what this thing is doing and like, did that deploy succeed? And if so, is it getting traffic and, and all that stuff? So there's a whole set of things that we can solve very, very effectively, you know, in, in the form of a commercial product that doesn't require us to like hold things back from the service mesh. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Kubernetes, I don't think, really uh, often is credited for making things simpler to understand. Like, <laughs> uh, so Dive is, uh, it's, it's, you said it's a SaaS product. Mm-hmm. So I, I have my Kubernetes cluster or clusters, and I put Linkerd and install the open source project inside there. You know, once I have access to Dive, then it's able just to like, I'm, I'm able to just connect my Linkerd Installation into Dive and it's sending some of the data back up, and I can control my cluster or view it from inside Dive. That's right. That's right. So we want to give you that dashboard, you know, that kind of unifies everything across all your clusters, across all your namespaces, and gives you, you know, not the implementation view, right? Oh, this pod is in this namespace of this cluster and whatever. Like there's a million tools for doing that. But instead, you know, kind of from the organizational perspective, what is my application and who owns it and where is it running and like what's the state of that and what has changed recently right there's a whole set of questions that 
you need to be able to answer effectively if you were building a platform on top of Kubernetes. And these are the sorts of things where, you know, for all the Kubernetes adoption, people are just starting to tackle this. People are just starting to realize, holy crap, I, you know, I'm building a platform and I actually need a layer on top of here that can translate this to the rest of the organization. And I need a layer on top of that just for me. You know, it's not enough to have a bunch of Kubernetes cluster inspectors, right? And to have like Prometheus sitting over there or Datadog and like, okay, now I've got a platform. It's actually a lot more that's required, especially if you want that platform to be, you know, kind of the thing that gets out of the way of the developers that that enables them to launch code and 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 run code in a way that can scale and that's reliable and and where they have the right feedback loops, right? Because what we what you really want, now I'm getting a little philosophical. What you really want, I think, is you you want your developers to take on the persona of service owners, right? So it's it's not just I write this code and I push it to the platform and like now I'm done, right? You want them to say I push this code to the platform and I still own it, right? So now I'm I'm looking at it and I'm getting alerts for it. And if this thing breaks at three a.m., I'm on call for it and I'm going to wake it up. And I might not understand the details of the platform and, and how that stuff worked. But I have ownership over my code, starting obviously with the writing of the code, but not ending with deploying. Right? I have full lifecycle ownership, and that's that's what we call the service owner. So that's kind of the philosophical goal that I think we, we want to get to. And that's how we're designing Dive, certainly, is to enable that sort of behavior. So you have not just platform ownership, but also service ownership. Yeah, Dive looks super cool. I mean, we have a, a, a team of SREs, site reliability engineers, that tries to build some of the tooling to enable that service owner inside our organization. Um, but Dive just really looks like it codifies and productizes a lot of that functionality for us. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's not like I'm a genius and I've just like come up with this, right? It's like I look around at what companies are doing and they are basically all building versions of Dive internally. And they're always scrapped for resources, and it's always hard to like build this stuff. And you know, it sits at this weird intersection of like, well, I need to build a UI on top of this platform stuff, you know, and that's already like two communities that don't <laughs> don't always overlap. But yeah, if you know, this stuff has to be built, so that gives me a lot of confidence. Uh, and and certainly, the feedback that we get from our from our customers continues to give me confidence. So, hopefully, we'll get past uh, you know, kind of the private beta stage pretty soon. That's cool. You know, you mentioned kind of getting a little bit philosophical. I was like preparing a little bit here. I came across a manifesto or a meshifesto, I guess, that you've written on the on the <laughs> Buoyant website. Uh-oh. I'm kind of curious, like, if you can explain that to to us here, so we can understand, like, like you know, the parts that we haven't covered already. Like, what do you have in your service meshifesto? Yeah. So look, you know, I I am the CEO of this venture backed startup, but I'm still an engineer. At heart, right? It hasn't been that many years since I was writing code for a living. And so I am very empathetic to our Linkerd users and, and adopters. And I feel like I understand the kind of situations that they are in. And, you know, they'll, they'll bring in this technology and they kind of have to justify it. And like, no one understands what the hell it does. And, you know, it's a tough role. Being in the platform role is a tough role to be in. So mostly what I wanted to do in that meshifesto, <laughs> that's a great term, was I wanted to have this very honest look at the service mesh. Right? If you're an engineer, your life is, a, especially a software engineer, but I, I think any kind of engineer, your life is about trade-offs. Right? You know there's no perfect solution to all these things. So 
you're always taking something and you're trading something else for it. And I just wanted to get that out there and say, look, here's what the service mesh is. Here's why it makes sense. By the way, it didn't make sense 10 years ago. So here's what changed and here's what made it make sense. Here's what you're getting. Here's what you are giving up. You know, and here's how to think about that trade-off. I just wanted to have this kind of honest conversation because for better or for worse, there's so much noise in the service mesh space and there's so much vendor-driven marketing. And like I'm a vendor, so <laughs> I have to I have to be a little careful when I say that. But you know, I'm not a vendor of the of the service mesh. That's an open source project, right? I'm a vendor of like this of dive and like this kind of platform tooling on top of it. But there's so much noise, it's really hard. To tease apart like what this thing is and what actually, you know, what's the value and how do I think about this? And are there situations where I shouldn't use a service mesh? The answer is yes, there's tons of situations where it doesn't make sense. So that was my goal with that piece, was to just get it out there, you know, and, and at least try and have a little bit of signal floating in this giant sea of, of noise. So you're saying it's not actually required to run a service mesh if I want to have a reliable, observable, and secure environment. It, service mesh might make it easier, but it's not like uh, uh, like I need that. Well, I mean, you know, we ran Twitter, which is probably the highest scale system that I'll ever work on without a service mesh. I mean, we had Finagle, right? Which maybe you could argue was like an early version of a service mesh, but you know, it wasn't like sidecar proxies and and all that stuff. Yeah, there's many, many ways to have a reliable system. I mean, you can use a monolith. You don't even have to use Kubernetes. That's true. Believe it or not. <laughs> you know, so it's easy to get caught up in, you know, especially in our little little bubble. But the reality is there are many, many ways that you can build reliable software. I happen to think the cloud native approach is a really good one, but it's not one that's available to everyone. You might just have so much kind of existing investment in, in other technology that for you to switch over would be crazy. Okay, so make a you know make a data driven decision, right? And same thing with the service mesh. You could be using Kubernetes, and maybe you are like running a monolith on there. Well, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's a little weird. But if you have a, a monolith, you probably don't need a service mesh because there's no service to service communication. And for us, you know, specifically for Linkerd, we tie very heavily to Kubernetes because that allows us to keep Linkerd very lean and very small. But that means that you can't use Linkerd if you are running on, you know, outside of Kubernetes, and that's a trade-off that that we've made, and that should be clear and obvious from like all of the, you know, documentation and and, and even the marketing around Linkerd. So let's say that I do. I'm not running any service mesh in Kubernetes right now, and I, I decide it's time to start kind of dipping my toe in the water. I'm, I, I run a Kubernetes cluster. Do you have any patterns that you've seen work really successfully for somebody to avoid, you know, trying to adopt too much all at once? And like, what what do, what is a good path for somebody to start adopting Linkerd? Oh yeah, yeah, this is a great question. So I think the most important step is step zero, which is understand what problem you're trying to solve. Right, like right. your problem cannot be, I need a service mesh. Right, <laughs> I don't have a service mesh, and that's the problem I need to solve. Right, that's not the reason to do this, and the reason that has been so pounded into my brain is because for whatever reason, man, it's like there is a segment of the world that it's like fashion-driven technology. Like, uh, you know, why am I doing this? Well, I read about this blog post, and therefore I'm going to do this thing. And like, I understand from kind of the learning perspective. Okay, you should try different things, and you know, you should always be uh, exploring and learning, but. It's weird how many people are adopting Linkerd because 
they feel like they need to adopt a service mesh and they don't have a, a reason why. <laughs> you know? So step zero is understand what problem you're trying to solve. And you know, I have some suggestions for <laughs> what those problems are. And then step one, you know, I guess is install Linkerd. <laughs> right? We we try and make it, and this is a big difference between Linkerd and any other Kubernetes service mesh, is that we try and make it as easy and as safe to install Linkerd and to do it in an incremental way as possible. So one of our big, you know, even from the very beginnings of of uh, kind of Linkerd 2.0, certainly 1.x was different because we, you know, there our goal was like, okay, let's take Finagle and like whatever that thing does, you know, that's now a service mesh. For 2.0, we actually took a step back and we said, okay, what's the right way to do this? Right? What would you actually want out of the service mesh? And, and one of the kind of philosophical principles was that, that we arrived at was if you have a functioning application on Kubernetes and you install Linkerd, the application should continue functioning. Right? That's like, <laughs> it sounds crazy, but it's actually not that crazy. Uh, it doesn't sound crazy at all. You know, it's hard to do. But that is a principle that we've held true to since you know 2.0. We're now on 2.9, right? So, yeah. Once you install Linkerd, your application should continue to function. And then you know, there's kind of two parts to a service mesh: there's a control plane and there's a data plane. Once you install the control plane, actually nothing should change because you've just installed some things off to the side and they're not even active yet. The next step is you add the data plane. This is the actual proxies. You add those to your applications, and that can be done incrementally. You could even do that one pod at a time, though usually you'll do it one service at a time. And so we give you these really safe ways of incrementally adding Linkerd. And the other thing we do, which is really, really critical, and man, this is like the product of many, many lessons learned, is we give you a lot of tools for understanding the state of the service mesh, for Inspecting, like, okay, what's actually happening here? Because the moment you install Linkerd, I guarantee you, the moment you install it, you know, and someone else is running their code on it, and something breaks, they're going to be like, "Dude, it's, it's a service mesh. What did you do? What's this? That that thing's broken. It broke my code." Yep. Right. And so that happens every single time. So we need to give you those tools so you can say, actually, look, here's this thing, and here's what happened, and this is why that's happening. It's cool. Uh, and so you said 2.9 is the current version. Cool. Did you say that's cool? Mark, that's not just cool. That's foundational. Actually, you know what? It, it is. I was like, <laughs> as you were explaining it, I was like kind of going through the installation docs and, you know, like the whole CLI that you shipped, you have pre-flight checks built into there. We should dive into that a little bit more. Oh man, that's just, it's a product of like this experience. And, and again, I think it comes back to empathy for our users. Like we know what's going to happen you install this thing. It's not like, oh cool, I got this thing running, now I get to you know, collect my paycheck. I know you're going to get into trouble. I know it, because I've seen it over and over and over again. And what we're trying to build with Linkerd is not like this ultimate platform to solve all things for all peoples. We're trying to build this thing that actually solves very concrete, specific problems for you know, SREs and platform owners who are adopting Kubernetes. And so we can't just, it's not just like solve the metrics problem or give them great observability. It's like, I need to solve every other problem that you're going to encounter, you know, including the like people in your company are yelling at you because you installed the service mesh problem. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you have battle scars that you were alluding to there around installing it and having that affect something in the cluster, which brings an application down or stops some kind of service to service communication or ingress traffic or something. 
And just just by not because you're using Linkerd, just the process of installing software should not affect anything that's currently running in the cluster. Right. Part of building a good product is understanding. I think you know every every component of that lifecycle from not just installation but from maintenance and and upgrades and and all that stuff. Ah, uh, yeah. It's hard. Like this stuff is hard. It's not easy to run this stuff. Even as as easy we, as we try and make it with Linkerd, man, it's still not trivial by any means. Actually, running a service mesh, you know, or heck, Kubernetes itself in production. Yeah, I think that's what gives a lot of these like Kubernetes and other service meshes, you know, potentially you know bad names and like the complexity. It's just like the effort that you have to put into making it consumable and usable and approachable it's it's a large huge effort it's there's a lot of product work that has to go in even if it is just a, a CLI tool you have to think through all the edge cases and everything right I'd love to shift now and kind of talk a little bit about uh, the current version of linkerd what you've been working on in like the in the roadmap what's coming what should we look forward to yeah so 2.8 which is out in June multi-cluster as I mentioned was the big feature there and 2.9 which is out in early November. The big feature there is MTLS or, or mutual TLS for all TCP communication. So Linkerd has had mutual TLS for a while now uh, for, for HTTP communication. In 2.9, we're extending that so that it doesn't matter you know, what the protocol is. If you are making a connection, uh, you know, a TCP connection from point A to point B, and like, you know, both sides are meshed. So you've got the data plane running on both sides. Then Linkerd will transparently add mutual TLS to that connection without you having to do anything. In fact, you don't even have to enable it. It's on by default. And by add MTLS, what I mean is distribute the certificates and rotate them every 24 hours and, and tie the identity there to the Kubernetes service account of the pod. Like Take care of all the details here. So that when you install it, you know you have this thing that pushes you in kind of a major way towards zero trust security without you having to pay the price, without you having to configure a whole bunch of stuff and potentially get it wrong and potentially leave it insecure. So that's a that's a pretty big milestone for us. Yeah, I'm actually would love to dive into a little bit of the technical implementation details there. Mutual TLS. Uh, for all TCP connections instead of just HTTP, like what were the challenges with implementing that? Yeah, so actually doing the TLS itself is not that hard in the sense that there are many, many libraries that kind of exist to actually do that. The hard part is usually the certificate management, you know, like rotating the certs and distributing them and and creating them and where do they come from and you know, chaining them, and you know, once you get into multi-cluster, then it's like there's an additional layer of complexity there. So really, it's more around the certificate management and making sure that you're doing this in a way that doesn't make things less secure. You know, <laughs> like you know, make sure that the the key materials are are stored in a you know using some Kubernetes primitive that actually keeps them safe, and you're not transmitting them across pod boundaries and you know, there's there's just a lot of details to get right when you're doing this. With that, do I get strong identities for all the pods also? So you get yes, you get strong identities which are tied to Kubernetes service account. So the service account of that pod is what Linkerd will use as the identity for the certificate. Okay. And then that's that's shipping in the next couple of weeks here in early November, right? 
Early November. Yep, yep. And there's a bunch of other. Man, this is a massive release. I mean, we also moved the proxy to a, a, a multi-core runtime. So up until 2.9, we've actually gotten away with just running on a single core because it's so fast, <laughs> and you know we've just optimized the hell out of it. But once you get to a certain throughput, you know, and and concurrency, being able to extend to multiple cores becomes uh, necessary. So we've got a new multi-core runtime. 2.9 adds ARM support, so if you want to get this thing running on your Raspberry Pi, you can do that. Gosh, what else did we add? Service topologies, which is this new Kubernetes feature that allows you, allows you to kind of express these routing preferences, like, hey, try and send it to something on the same node, and if it's not on the same node, then to the same cluster, and, and, and so on. So there's just a yeah, ton of cool stuff. Sounds like a lot of that. I mean, ARM, ARM is great. Like we, we run a lot of you know, Graviton and even like, you know, clusters like that run things like that now for the the nodes and so that that's that's awesome. Um, and it sounds like a lot of the other stuff is around just really like doubling down on optimization, making it faster, making it like service topology is the primary goal of that around optimization. Yeah, that's right. That's right. A lot of this work is around making Linkerd you know as fast and as low memory as possible. Because remember you're you're adding these proxies to like every pod. So if you've got you know ten applications and each application has a hundred pods, you know, and well now you've got a thousand instances of of the Linkerd data plane proxy, and so if that thing takes one hundred thirty megs, well, like, you know, it's like it's not trivial, you know. So we try and make that as as small as possible, and then every request is going through not just one, but is going through two proxies. You've got one on either end. You've got the client side and the server side. So. Every millisecond or microsecond of latency that we add in the proxy is like potentially something that's a user-facing change. So making this thing as fast as possible, you know, is is the other goal. And then, of course, you know, there's kind of a we haven't talked too much about this in, in this podcast, but there's uh, this underlying security theme that we focus on very heavily in Linkerd land, especially in the data plane, because that's where you know the application data. Has to transit, right? So if you have PCI data or HIPAA compliant data or PII or whatever, all of that data is going through the proxy, and so the proxy has to be really secure. It's got to be really stable. You can't have a buffer overflow exploit in there. It's part of the reason why we wrote it in 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 Rust. And that same kind of idea of security, of course, extends to mutual TLS and you know all all the other cool stuff we do. So the the proxy is written in Go, but that data plane that's what's written in Rust right now. The, the data plane is the proxy, and that is what is written in Rust. Okay. Yeah. So the control plane is written in Go, which is nice for a lot of reasons uh, in the Kubernetes world, especially almost everything is written in Go. So we can kind of leverage these Kubernetes client libraries and, and things like that. And it's also a nice language for kind of open source contribution because the barrier to entry tends to be quite a bit lower than than other languages. But on the data plane. You know the thing we optimize for there is security and and speed, and so Rust was really the only, it was the only logical choice for us there. We had to make this thing as fast as possible, which meant we had to compile the native code. We couldn't have a, you know, a managed runtime. Even Go, which is relatively fast, we knew was not going to be fast enough at the at the proxy layer. But at the same time, you know, of course, we didn't want to write it in C or C because it's hard to get programs written in those languages to really be safe. It's not impossible. But it's not, you know, it's a lot of human effort as opposed to a lot of uh, computer effort. Sure. 
And how how is a uh, Rust been as far as in an open source project? Ha- have you, um, or is this not that not an area of the Linkerd project that you're really looking and striving to get a ton of open source contributions into? Oh, we definitely are. It's just that that barrier to entry is is a lot higher than on the on the Go side. So um, Eliza Weissman, who's one of our Linkerd maintainers, has started doing this uh, weekly or or near weekly proxy live coding stream, live coding live stream. Uh, which has been really cool, and we've done a lot more kind of blogging and stuff about the proxy because proxy is super super cool. Like if you are into if you're like a systems nerd, proxy is like this super fast asynchronous network program written in with like kind of the the state of the art like network programming stuff is all happening in Rust these days. Uh, so it's like you know nerd heaven in there, but the barrier to entry to Rust is is, is Pretty high, you know. There's like the the borrow checker and whatever. I don't know. I'm just like I'm looking at this from the outside in. I've never written in line of Rust, but I've I've watched Oliver, you know, who's who's like the real, you know, the, the person who's writing a lot of the code in in the proxy, especially. I've watched him transition from Scala to Rust, and you know, it's not an easy transformation to make because Rust is it's designed with this. Kind of core safety, memory safety thing under the hood, and that takes time to get your to wrap your brain around, even for a really experienced programmer. It sounds like it's really cool that you're you, you have that live coding stream going on once a week or so. So if you're just kind of getting into it, kind of learn learn the project, the architecture, and kind of and watch uh, an expert here that knows it. Just watch them write some code, and you probably pick up a ton from it. Yeah, we love getting proxy contributions. That's super cool, and it's such a cool. Project. It's this is one of the things where I'm like, oh man, I wish I wish I could still, you know, was allowed to write code because how fun, you know, it's like super optimized network programming code. That's yeah, that's fun. Um, but I did write this um, article a year or two ago on InfoQ about our evolution from Linkerd 1.x and and 2.0 with with Go and Rust and a lot of the factors that went into our choice of. Uh, Rust for the implementation language. You asked how it's been. It's been great, but you know when we made that choice back in 2000, I think 17 was when we were starting to really look at it. It was scary. It was a gamble because the, the the network ecosystem was just starting to to flesh out there. So it was a real gamble to <laughs> to invest in Rust. But it's been great. You know, a couple of years later, we're like, all right, that really paid off. <laughs> That's great. Is there a certain type of use case that you're looking for from somebody who's coming in new into the ecosystem that you know you'd like to see it fleshed out a little bit more in Linkerd? Uh, is there anything like that that you're you're looking for? You'd like to kind of put a call out for? In terms of using Linkerd, I think the multi-cluster use case is a super cool one, and and we're we're just seeing people start to adopt that. I think we were a little ahead of the curve with with 2.8, so I'm definitely interested in hearing more about kind of service. Or cross-cluster communication with Linkerd. I think we've done something that's super cool there, where it's totally transparent to you as the as the user. You know, you can you can even do fancy stuff where you're like failing traffic over. You know, service A is talking to service B, and you're going to slowly fail traffic over to like another cluster that has B and, and, and on it. But I think we're just starting to see people really invest in that now. Uh, so, and, and I'm sure there's a couple bumps we have to like iron out. Uh, especially around things like certificate management in in that world. Uh, so I'd love to hear more use cases around that. Similarly, the the tooling, you know, building stuff on top of Linkerd, 
is always something that I'm interested in. Flagger, I, I hope, is just the beginning. I love the idea of there being, you know, this this business logic that you're building, whether it's for canary deploys or or for cross cluster failover or whatever, where you're tying together these core primitives that Linkerd is providing around metrics, around traffic splitting, and and so on, uh, and building these like higher order operations around that. And then in terms of contributions, gosh, man, there's <laughs> there's so much fun stuff to do. You know, uh, one thing we've been looking at kind of on and off is is Wasm or, or WebAssembly. Envoy's done this recently, and, and it seems to have worked out really well. So it'd be interesting to think about what we can do on the Rust side in kind of the same vein. We haven't needed to as, as much as Envoy needed to, mostly because the Linkerd proxy has been so specific to Linkerd. But you know, one thing that we lost in the move from the JVM to Rust is the JVM. You know, is like it sucks in a lot of ways, but one thing it really was really good at is it had a great plugin model. So if you want to do some really business, you know, uh, business specific business logic in the data plane, like you wanted to rewrite headers or to like you know inject your custom thing or whatever, having that plugin model was actually really valuable in one dot x. And we haven't really had a great way of doing that in two dot x because we're compiling these proxies, you know, in Rust down to these super light, you know, native code things. So uh, Wasm. Might be a way of giving people data plane proxies, which would be uh, sorry, data plane plugins, which I think potentially could be really cool, and I'd love to see what people can do with those. Yeah, that's cool. That's a great idea. And so you, you, the team's pretty focused right now. And you know, two point nine is coming out. Do you have any thoughts as to what what you're going to be looking at in two point ten? Yeah, there's a couple of things we're going to look at. One definitely is making the control plane a little more modular. So right now you get uh, Prometheus and Grafana and, and all these components and the dashboard and, and so on. I'd like to support, and we started doing this already, I think in 2.9, another thing we'll have is bring your own Prometheus. So we'll make it so that you can more easily use an external Prometheus rather than relying on the one that, that Linkerd installs. I'd like to extend that further, or we would like to extend that further and make it so that you can have these really minimalist control plane installs. Uh, another big one on the roadmap for us is policy. You know, we've done all this work to get MTLS and identity so that we can, you know, we can we can encrypt the connection and give you confidentiality. We can verify the identity on either side and give you authenticity. But the thing we haven't added yet is authorization. You know, is is this request actually allowed to happen? Right now, the proxy will do its best to satisfy the request. It'll always say yes, but sometimes you might want to say no. Uh, so policy is is on the roadmap for us as well, and I think that'll be that'll be really fun. That that sounds like a, a lot of work to get authorization, right? Though. Well, you know, it's actually not. I mean, we have all the building blocks in place, right? The proxy is already there. It's already, you know, making decisions about requests. It's already got identity on both sides. The only thing it doesn't have is like the decision to say yes or no. <laughs> so if you can provide it with that, and you know, presumably we wouldn't, you know, we plug into something. OPA is like a common framework for like expressing policy. Presumably, plug into something like that. I don't want to like come up with a definition language for for Linkerd. I'd rather play with the existing ecosystem. So I actually don't think it's a huge amount of work. Oliver's probably listening to this and like rolling his eyes because he has to write the code. But from my perspective, as the marketing slash <laughs> you know CEO person, ah, should be pretty easy. But it is cool that you want to plug into the existing ecosystem and not go zero to one on something new. So like that that should help a little bit. Yeah. Well, and that's been a big theme for us as well. You know, we we rely not just a heavy reliance on Kubernetes, but we pull in Prometheus and Grafana and and, and all these components because. 
you know, we don't even provide our own ingress, right? That's another big difference. Is Linkerd basically we just make it pair with any ingress controller that you want to use. So it's all in the name of being lightweight and being composable and kind of being, you know, this is what a good engineering project should do. It should fit in and it should be modular and, and composable and pluggable. Yeah, very, very bash style. Just do the thing that you want to do, do it really well, and be a building block on top of that. Right, the Unix philosophy. Cool. I don't really have any other questions right now. Is there any other thing that you know you want to share or you want to bring up? I think you've covered the highlights with this incredible set of questions. I guess the only thing I'd add is, you know, if anyone is out there is running Kubernetes and wants to solve problems around observability, so getting a consistent layer of metrics, uh, you know, especially things like success rates and, and latencies across all their applications, or wants to add a set of uh, kind of default reliability tools like retries and timeouts and, and canary deploys, or wants to add mutual TLS in a way that is not painful, that requires very little effort on your part, but that still gives you a lot of control, then please go to linkerd.io and just click on the Getting Started. It should take you about five minutes to install it. We've got a very healthy and active Slack channel on slack.linkerd.io. Tons of friendly people who are eager to help you out. And it's all open source. We don't hold back any features. It's all in the CNCF. It's pure problem-solving goodness. Awesome. Well, thanks, William. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation here, and I've learned a lot about Linkerd. i got to go uh, give it another try. Thanks, Mark. Hope to see you in the Slack, giving us uh, lots of feedback. That's all we have time for today. If you're the maintainer of a CNCF project and would like to be a guest on this show, head over to kubelist.com. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks and content on sales, marketing, product, and more for founders of developer tools companies. And this podcast is brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.